John chapter 10. If you didn't hear the message from last week, you need to get a copy. It was outstanding, an outstanding word uh, from Pastor Peter. Uh, One of the fringe benefits of that message for me, the message stood on its own two feet and was stirred my soul and uh, caused me just to feast on the goodness of the Lord in contemplating him as his role as a shepherd. Um, But I think one of the fringe benefits for us is that we got a chance to see the unity of the Bible. How can you travel from John 10 with a story in which Jesus is related to people roughly around 30 A.D. back into Psalm 23, a thousand years difference in history, totally different literary genre. You're moving from a gospel narrative account into poetry and a song And yet, when you preach on Psalm 23, you're preaching the pastoral heart of John 10. And the answer to that is, there's an author above the authors of Scripture. And so we just once again get a chance to see that this book, these collection of books, uh, is inspired by God. And God has a message he wants to get through from generation to generation. And he sees to it that his word gets through. So what a wonderful passage to consider last week. If you haven't heard that, then I'd encourage you to grab the CD. We're going to begin by reading in John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus, uh, we want to behold you afresh this morning. So Lord, would you in this moment touch my mouth Help me to proclaim truth with clarity and by your Holy Spirit with spiritual power that brings about an effect in our lives. Lord, this is doctrinal ground that we're going over, so the immediate pragmatic benefits might not be felt in this moment today. But I pray this doctrine goes so deep in us That when we do come to that moment where we know we need this, we'll feel it and it'll be there for us to sustain us and to ground us in the gospel. Holy Spirit, touch our ears that we might listen attentively to your word and hear and be transformed and stand in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you don't have to read very far in the Gospels before you discover that Jesus is not averse to controversy. 
He's stirring things up everywhere he goes. And as a matter of fact, in general, the Bible itself is not a book that avoids controversy. There are a lot of moments. I think one of the one of my most regular experiences over the years of reading God's word, as I read God's word attentively, is to hear, in a sense, God saying to me, will you submit to my view of reality? <laughs> right? Will, will you buy into what I'm saying here? Will you submit to what I'm saying about your role in marriage? Will you submit to what I'm saying about the ideologies that are floating around in the culture and in the society in which you live? Will you believe what I'm saying about the deceitfulness of riches? Will you believe what I'm saying about a whole host of categories? Because we walk through life and we tend to just inherit ideas. And when we read the Bible, we need to bear in mind, this is not just another idea among many ideas. God is telling us his ideas. And his ideas aren't just ideas. They're called truth. (laughs) So when God speaks, he's speaking truth. And and there are moments where, really, throughout God's word, there's always two audiences. When God's truth comes to us in any category, his truth always meets one of two audiences. There are those who, who receive, who listen, who inquire, who believe, who follow, right? That's one brand of response. And then there are those who... On the soft side, ignore it, are indifferent to it, don't really care about it very much. We'll factor it in, kind of put it in the back and weigh it with my own thoughts. And then there are those who more militantly oppose it, mock it, gainsay it. And that's true in our passage as well. Jesus has been saying some things from the beginning of John 10, and he's got two audiences right before the passage that we read. Look in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews. As soon as he takes a breath, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others, a second audience. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The truth of God is either going to be loved or hated. It's kind of like New Orleans. You either love this city or you really do not like this city. I love this city. But I talk to college students all the time who come here because they're exchange students and they can't wait to get home. They don't like this city. And then other ones, they come, they're like, man, no wonder people stay here forever. This is a great city. It's got all these little weird traditions and the people know everybody and the Dorgnax culture and all this stuff that's going on. You just get to know the idiosyncrasies of our city here. But you either love the truth or you hate the truth. And what we can't do as Christians is retreat from passages that are controversial, that rub us the wrong way. Because God has inspired these passages. Augustine said, God has given us easy texts to encourage our faith. He's given us hard texts to encourage our humility. We need hard texts. We need texts that rub us the wrong way. We need texts that say God is much bigger than we ever thought he was. We need texts that say we're much smaller than we ever thought we were. We need those passages, and God has inspired them for a purpose. One of the professors I had in college, in Bible college, several years ago said, controversy for controversy's sake is sin. Controversy for the sake of biblical truth is a divine command. So Jesus has been saying some things here. 
which are, at least to one audience, deeply controversial. What I hope is that as Christians who come to this text, we don't find this to be a bone of controversy that we like to fight over, but a truth that God has spoken, and therefore we would do well to listen to it, to embrace it, and to see it as precious for our lives. So we come to verse 24. These leaders that are in Jesus' audience are not inspired. They're annoyed. In fact, D.A. Carson says about verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? He says a better translation of that in the Greek is, how long will you continue to annoy us? <laughs> you, uh, we're on our last nerve. Would you just give us a plain answer for a change? Would you just tell us, yes, I'm the Christ, No, I'm not the Christ. Wrong guy, right guy. Tell us. Answer us plainly. In one sense, as we read on, Jesus doesn't give them the plainest answer. He doesn't come out and just say, yes, I am satisfied. He doesn't just come out and say it that plainly. And yet it's interesting because if you look at other passages, Jesus does do that. When he's relating to his disciples, to believers in Matthew 16. And he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah, prophet, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, I say you're the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. I am. I'm Christ. You got it. That's right. He's very plainly in that moment. In John 4, earlier in this gospel, Jesus is relating to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, an unbeliever who's about to be a believer. He knows it. He knows she's attentive. She's listening. And he says to her, she says, there's one who's coming who's called the Christ. And he says, you're looking at him. In John 9, right before the chapter that we're in right now, Jesus heals a blind man at the end of their encounter. He gives this man an inkling of who he is. The man says, where is he that I might see him? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. I am the Christ. I am the son of man. And the man worships him. Jesus, he knows his audiences and he speaks differently to different audiences. So when religious leader skeptics try to catch him in their trap of the blasphemy laws that they have, he doesn't play along. And he's not obligated to. Jesus speaks. Nonetheless, even though he doesn't say, yes, I am the Christ, his point clearly comes across. Right? Within one paragraph of what he said, the Jews, in verse 31, pick up stones again to stone him. So they catch his drift. He is saying somewhere in there, yes, I am the Christ. So they catch his meaning. But he has been cumulatively bugging them from the beginning of this chapter. And we're going to go back and see some of the self-portraits of Jesus. He begins in verse 1 and 2. By describing himself as the shepherd of the sheep. And he immediately sets up this awkward and unsettling contrast between his own identity and the identity of these religious leaders who were in his audience. And he's saying, I'm the shepherd. These guys here listening, the ones that are constantly contradicting me, they're false shepherds. In other places, he calls them false teachers. Here, he prefers to call them robbers and thieves. And and he's using it under the metaphor. He's saying, look, they're climbing over the walls to try to teach the people to go astray from God. And he says, I'm the shepherd. I come through the door. You know, when I leave this meeting, I'm not going to drive down my street, park five houses down, tiptoe into my backyard, cut the security system wire, 
jimmy the window open and slide in through the bedroom. I'm, I got a key. I just, you know, turn it and go through the door. But the obvious reason is it's my house. I mean, the people in that house are my people. That's my place. We live there. It's where we belong. And Jesus is basically saying, I go into the fold and I lead the sheep and I shepherd the flock. And they follow me because they're my sheep. They're mine. They're not yours. You're leading them astray. So Jesus is setting up his identity in contrast to the false teachers, the religious leaders of his days. You can see how they're starting to get their back up even from the very beginning. But he goes further in verse six. They're apparently not catching all the symbolism and the metaphors that Jesus is using. So he keeps the same basic picture, but he changes his own identity in the metaphor. So now he's not the shepherd. He's the door into the fold. He says, I'm the door through which the sheep enter into the fold. In other words, there's no other way into eternal life other than to come through me. I'm the door into the fold of God. There are implications even in this, not only for them to say the teaching of Moses will not get you into the fold of God. Your religious leaders, your church rites and practices will not get you into the fold of God. And that's true for us as well. The practices of the church will not get us into eternal life. In this context, coming into the fold equals eternal life. It means obtaining eternal life. That's what all these metaphors are aiming at. And Jesus is saying there is no other way. Spirituality in 21st century America is not a valid road to God other than a Christocentric spirituality, a spirituality that gets to God through the mediator that God has provided, namely Jesus Christ. David Pallison has talked about this, the problem of mysticism in our day, that mysticism, Christian mysticism, seeks to do an end run around Christ to get to God directly. Listen, listen for what you're hearing when you listen to radio broadcasts and teaching and you read books. Does it have a lot to say about Jesus being the way to God? If it doesn't, be careful. He's the only way to God. Jesus makes that very clear. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life, that they might enter into life and have it abundantly. Now here, this passage is very easy to take out of context. You just rip it out of John 10 and treat abundant life however in the world you want to. The good life, uh, happy life, your best life. That's not what this abundant life means. Abundant life here in John 10 is not the absence of suffering. It's not even a good marriage with above average kids. It's it's not that you are endlessly graduating to higher degrees of material wealth. It's not that you're free from sickness. It's eternal life. Right. It's 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 sad when we become so. So in bondage to the voices of our culture that when we hear that abundant life is eternal life, it's a letdown. You know what I mean? Like, oh, dog, that's just the spiritual thing. It's just the eternal life. Like I'll be in heaven and like God is living inside of me. That's that's it. It doesn't have anything to do with these temporary things that I really could use right now. No, it's so much better than that. Think like a Christian. Think like one who honors God's word. God says, I've come to give you eternal life. There's nothing better that you could possibly have. And I've come to give it to you, and I'm the only way to get it. I am the door. 
Not only that, he's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the door into the fold. And he goes on to say in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, before he can give eternal life to the sheep, he has to die for the sheep. To put it another way, before he can be their shepherd, he has to be their substitute. He has to give his life for the sheep. This is a prerequisite. We could never receive eternal life apart from the cross of Christ. He had to die for us to be able to live in the pastures of God, to enjoy all the message was last week from Psalm 23. Jesus needed to die. And so it's not surprising when he comes on the scene at the beginning of his ministry, he's coming down to the waters of the Jordan. Remember this? John the Baptist looks up and he doesn't say, behold, the good shepherd. What does he say? Behold, the lamb of God. So wait, the shepherd... To be the shepherd had to become a lamb. He himself, to bear the sins of straying, wandering, rebellious, indifferent, materialistic lambs, he had to himself become a lamb and die for lambs in order to forgive them, in order to forgive us and give us entrance through the doorway into salvation. Again, the scripture is uniform on this. We don't just get this from John 10. We can travel back as we did last week. Because far before Jesus ever showed up on the scene of Palestine or even in Bethlehem, 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he was writing about one who would eventually come. He would be the servant of God. He would do the will of God and get things done for God's people. And in the process, he describes this This process by which sheep would get bought, sins would get paid for through this one. Who do you think this one is? The good shepherd. He showed up in John 10. He's the one. Come to die for the sheep. Look at it. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 7. Should be on the screen behind me. But he was wounded for our transgression. You hear substitution here? Our transgressions, he took the wounds for them. He was crushed, for not for his own iniquities, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now we come into the picture. Here we are. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. There, there's the surprise. If you don't already know the story of redemption in the scriptures, that turn in the verse is unexpected. Look, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, forsaking the Lord, throwing off the one who made us, created us. And the Lord has laid on us our iniquities. That's what you would expect. It goes on to say something absolutely counterintuitive. And the Lord has laid on him. Who's this him? Where'd this him come from? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
Jesus is the shepherd who keeps the flock. He leads the flock. He loves the flock. He's the door into eternal life. Without him, we could never receive the gift of eternal life. And he is the substitute, the lamb who bears our sins. Now, if we stop here, there's a sense in which Jesus is only a potential savior. So far, Jesus has come. He said, I have to lay down my life for the sheep. He dies, and then he goes to the fold, and he opens the door. Now what's he going to do? Shout all over the world? Hey, sheep! Here, boy, here, boy. Just calling out near the fold? In other words, he could be the potential savior of everyone and the actual savior of no one. How are sheep going to actually get in the fold? Is Jesus going to die for them and wait by the fold pen calling out? No. The text goes on. Jesus paints himself with another portrait. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep. Now, this is Jesus with his face set like flint. This is Jesus on mission. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're out there somewhere. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus is on mission in verse 14 through 17. He's not just waiting for sheep, he's going out for them. He's going, he's speaking through the highways and the byways, through the church in our day. He's speaking through the church, through Christians, and he's saying, come to me. Through the gospel, preeminently, he's speaking. And he's winning people and his voice is going out and he says, I'm going to bring them. I'm going to get them and I'm going to bring them. He comes and he initiates. Just flip back to chapter 6, verse 37. This is a parallel account of John 10. It's very similar to John 10, verse 27 through 29. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, that giving of the Father to the Son sounds familiar. That's because we read it just a moment ago in John 10. Flip over. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. So, the Father has clearly in John 10 and in John 6 given sheep to Jesus. Now, in John 6, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So, let's do a little biblical interpretation here. How many of the sheep that are given by the Father to the Son, will come to Jesus. All of them. Keep on reading. And whoever comes to me, I will win. Never cast out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So how many of the ones who are given by the father will come to the son? How many of the ones who come to the son will be lost by the son? None of them. Is that clear in the text? 
my Jimmy in the text. That's clear in the text. Now, how does that rub us? How do we hear that? Do we hear that Jesus has two audiences? Remember, he, he's got two audiences. That implies some things that might be unsettling for us. The question is, will we submit? What is God saying? Is it clear? What's our response? A professor by the name of Edmund Clowney, he has been teaching, shepherding God's people for a long time. As a matter of fact, he just died in 2005, was in ministry since 42. He's been saying to seminary students year after year at Westminster Theological Seminary, every year, he says, there's one sentence that encapsulates the whole storyline of the Bible. And he said, it's found in the book of Jonah. It goes very simply like this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what the whole Bible is about. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who is Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12? And the hosts of heaven and all of the ones in the cloud of witnesses are looking, praising. And we're looking to that to finish the race. Who is this one that we're looking to? He is the author and the finisher of our faith. This is Christ. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus comes, if you haven't noticed it already, in John 6 and in John 10, he comes on the scene, his message, he comes up large and in charge. I mean, there is, there is no one frustrating Jesus in John 10. There is nobody above him, authority-wise, in John 10. He is not being foiled by religious skeptics in verse 24. Right? He, he is not, he's not even laying his life down because the Roman officials and their, their ability to execute people well happened. Look, he says that in the very next verse. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. To lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There is only one place in this John 10 where Jesus is under authority, and it's under his Father's authority. And every other place in John 10, he's calling the shots. He's initiating, he's going out winning sheep, he's opening a door through his death, he's voluntarily giving his life for the sheep, he's going out and calling them, and they're listening and following him. Jesus is calling the shots everywhere in John 10. He's the shepherd who feeds and cares for and protects the sheep because they're his. He's the door through which they enter eternal life. He's the savior substitute who lays down his life for the sheep. And he's the missionary who seeks and finds his sheep and brings them into the fold of God. But, you know, this even falls short of communicating the full range of Jesus' saving capabilities. He will do one more still. He will preserve and protect all of the sheep. All of them. He doesn't just get this ramped up and started and hope and pray for them that they live long enough or that they die early enough before they commit a certain sin. He stays, he protects, he shepherds the flock. Most of us will be aware of the 16th century schism in the church, which was called the Protestant Reformation. And there were many points of disagreement between Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformers. 
That's no surprise. And, and there are many, many of those issues live on today as differences between these two communions. They live on as differences, not because people just like to fight, but because the matters at hand are critical and both sides agree. They're very critical. What we're saying about salvation and justification, what we're saying about salvation on either side, both sides say this is a critical doctrine. We're not splitting hairs. This is extremely important. If we went back into the 16th century, we could bump into the right-hand man, the personal theologian of one of the popes. And his name was Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. Bellarmine was one of the most capable theologians in the 16th century. And he went on record saying the following. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is... Now, what would you think that would be? Just think for a second. Maybe justification by faith alone. Um, maybe the authority of the scriptures. Right, those, were, those were major issues that caused division in the 16th century. That's not what he said. He said the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Assurance. You might call it eternal security. The security of the believer is the greatest heresy in the Protestant church. Now, why would you say that? Think about it. Think about the implications. Of what, what does assurance have to do with this? It has everything to do with this. Everything to do with this. Sinclair Ferguson helps illuminate the relationship. He writes, If justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that is, if faith needs to be completed by works, then something always needs be added for final justification to be ours. That is exactly the problem. If final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is not possible to enjoy assurance of salvation. Does that stand to reason? But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace without contributory works, if it is received by faith's empty hands, then assurance even full assurance is possible for every believer. Now this, are you starting to see the relationship between assurance and the gospel? We've got to cash in on the idea of assurance because too many of us are walking around wondering, are we safe Yes, I know I've trusted in Christ. He's worked in my life. I know that. I'm going through hard times right now. I'm struggling right now with sin. I'm not on my best game lately. And I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what would happen if I died right now. You realize what an insult that is to the Son of God? What an insult. Not even the almighty, omnipotent Son could hold me in the midst of this. Oh. Believers, trust in God's word. He is making promises here that are mind-blowing in their ability to stabilize us. I want to give very quickly four foundations for assurance at the latter part of John 10. First is the power of the shepherd's voice. The power of the shepherd's voice. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. My mom is, uh, by nature, a very soft-spoken, elegant woman. 
she has also a mom voice. Maybe every mom gets that. As soon as the first child comes, you get a mom voice. It just comes with the baby. There's the Wow, look at that. Look how I project. <laughs> and my mom, I was just thinking about this a few days ago because I was outside shooting the ball with one of my kids and two of the others were riding their bike at the end of the street. I didn't have my glasses. I couldn't even see how far they were. And uh, when we were about to go inside, I shouted down the street just from right here, just boom, just shouted down the street. And then I saw them start to come. And I thought, my mom used to do that. And then I started to really think about other settings. Like, I remember being at Ryan Hennessy's house across the street, four doors down, inside the house. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Inside the house, in Ryan's room, hearing my mom just step out. She just got off the phone talking sweet. Mm, hi, yeah, it's great. Walks outside the front door, stands up straight. One word, boys. Shouts, boys, and throughout the neighborhood rings. Boys, I could hear it from anywhere. I used to wonder, how far does that voice go? Like, are people getting on planes miles from here? Like, what was that? It's just a, it's her powerful mom voice. Now, if she came outside and used her phone voice, we wouldn't come. Same mom, same vocal cords, but we're not coming until she uses her mom voice. Jesus has a shepherd voice. And when he uses his shepherd voice, his sheep come every time. His sheep hear. That's what you see in John 10. When he uses his shepherd voice. Now, is he using his shepherd voice with everybody? No, because when he's saying some things to people, I told you plainly. Yes, yes, yes. I am the Christ. They pick up rocks. But what happens in verse 42 at the end of the passage? Not everybody picked up rocks. Many believed in him there. Some of them heard a shepherd voice and they heard it and they followed it. They obeyed it. Jesus has a powerful voice. The voice of the shepherd for the sheep drowns out every other voice. It drowns out the voice of sin. It drowns out the voice of secular philosophy, of pagan pleasure pursuits. It drowns out every voice religious works that are trying to conjure up my own salvation, it drowns that out too. It drowns out my indifference that I'm just a person who just kind of does what I do and I, I don't really get into religion, I don't read anything. His voice gets through. And here you come. His voice doesn't merely drown out false shepherd voices on the day you were converted. Oh, what a precious truth this is. His voice rings in our ears every day. Every day, continuing to drown out the voice of sin and temptation. And the reason you came back after you went into that period of struggling, it's not because you pulled things together. It's because he used his shepherd voice to bring you back. And you heard it and you came. Second. Second foundation for the assurance of the believer is the eternality of eternal life. The eternality of eternal life. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Eternal life isn't something we wait for heaven to receive. 
We receive it now. We receive it when we turn from our sin. We turn from, as Timothy Keller says, we turn from our self-salvation project. We turn to him. We believe in him. We trust in him. We recognize he is our treasure. We submit to him as our Lord. And what happens? He gives us right then eternal life. Listen to these passages. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son, not will get eternal life, has eternal life. John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 17.3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen, assurance and security is not bound up with getting to heaven. What, what anchors you in assurance is not the fact that finally I'm in heaven. I arrived. Ah, oh, yeah, the streets are gold. Here, I, okay, I guess I'm safe. This is the place. Angels singing. Everybody's wearing white. Okay, th- yeah, I'm safe. Finally, you're not safe because you're in heaven. Lucifer wasn't safe because he was in heaven. He saw the glory of God day in and day out, saying holy, holy, holy with everybody else. He fell with a third of the angels. You're not saved and safe because you're in heaven. You're safe because you're in Jesus. This is eternal life. Not that they arrive in heaven and sing the songs with the choirs, but because they know me. The savior of the world, the shepherd of the sheep who called in their hearts and brought them to myself, who opened the door through my death on the cross. That's why you're safe and you don't get any safer than you are now. You'll never be safer than you are right now if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. The angels aren't more secure in heaven than you are if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. What a truth that is. The day you put your trust and surrender your life to Christ, you received eternal life. And by definition, that's eternal. <laughs> right? If, if you put your trust in Christ, you turn from your sin, you said, I believe you, Lord, I'll follow you. And five years later, you fall away from him and perish everlastingly. You didn't get eternal life. What'd you get? You got five years. If you put your trust in Christ... One day, genuinely put your trust in the Son of God who died for you. Ten years later, you slip up, become an atheist, recant on your confession. What happened? You didn't get eternal life. When we put our trust genuinely in Jesus Christ, not only does he bring us through the door, He keeps us in the doors. And when we stray, he comes and gets us and we come back through the doors. It's not to say that Christians don't become dull of hearing at times in their lives, hardened in their hearts. But he doesn't leave us and he doesn't just call us from the fold. He comes back for us again. And he brings us back to himself. We may fall temporarily. We will not fall finally. What a word that Jesus gave to Peter in Matthew 22 where he said, Peter, Satan has asked for you. It's going to be ugly. He's going to sift you like wheat. He's going to work you over. You're going to deny me. Everything's going to go south for you. But but I prayed for you, Peter. And, you know, if, if one day you come back, no. When you return, strengthen the brothers. There's no question about it, Peter. You're going to get worked over. I'm going to come. 
I'm going to bring you back home. It's the beauty of the gospel. Third, the grip of the shepherd. The grip of the shepherd. Verse 28 again. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You realize who's saying that? Who's saying no one will snatch them out of my hand? Turn back just for a second to John chapter 1. John begins with Jesus being large and in charge. (laughs) Being a sovereign, massive, powerful God. Not some hippie walking around Palestine loving people and hugging them. He is the sovereign God. And that's what you see from the first note of John. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, before the lights came on out here, before there were trees and grass, Jesus was God with God. Fellowshipping in the triune essence. All things, verse three, all things were made through him. Through who? The one who's holding you made everything. He's the creator of everything. Not only that. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's not only the creator who spun the galaxies and got this whole thing started. He's the one who triumphs over all evil. And that's the one that holds you? Are you in good hands? You are indeed in good hands. Finally, the grip of the Father. John 10, verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look, any one of these reasons is enough to give you rock-solid assurance for the rest of your life. Martin Luther said, my justification is so sure before God, I'd stake my life on it a thousand times. Your assurance is bedrock assurance. Any one of the reasons I've given you from John 10 is enough to stabilize your soul forever. But do you see how Jesus is piling them on? piling assurance after assurance after assurance. And he doesn't even stop with his own omnipotent grasp. You see how personal God is? He doesn't put you in a safety deposit box or a hermetically sealed vault somewhere. He gives you to the hands of his own son. And when he gives you to the son... He doesn't take his hands off of you and walk away. He keeps his hands on you even after he's given you to the sun. Like I remember we went to Bayou Segnet together as a family. We're walking and I've got just a crazy imagination when it comes to alligators. Anytime I see alligators and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by alligators and crocodiles. I'll always dream, always dream after I see an alligator. And so uh, I'm walking through this place and, and it's not like the zoo where everything's penned off. You could jump in right in there with them. I mean, they could come out to you and say hi. And I mean, it's just, there's nothing there between us. And there were alligators all over the place. 
I had a love-hate relationship with it because I'm literally inside. I'm not kidding. I was like trembling inside. Just like, oh, I love these creatures. I'm deathly afraid of these creatures. What's going to happen in this moment? So we're walking. There's this little like pier, this wooden pier. It's about eight inches off the water. And a large alligator comes swimming through the water. And we're just amazed. And we're there with mom and pop, my in-laws. We're all there just... And so Mr. Pete just starts to knock on the wood. He knows all the tricks to get the alligators over. He starts to knock on the wood. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, what's that going to do? The alligator turns and starts heading right toward the dock. I've got witnesses here. The alligator comes. The alligator comes literally nose to the dock. Big head like this. Nose to the dock. And we're right there, standing eight inches above its head. And my daughter is in Miss Kathy's arms. She's holding Ellie. And as soon as that alligator comes, I'm like this. I mean, I did anything but wrap my arms around my mother-in-law. Okay? (laughs) Awkward moment. But what I did was... I put my hand on Ellie's back. Ellie was more secure than any child in the segnet. All right. She's got grandma holding her real tight. And then she's got like, I'm like this. <laughs> she was not going in the water. I was going to fall in just losing my balance. If anybody was going in, she wasn't going in the water. I think in the sense, Jesus is piling on these assurances to say, listen, I've got you. If you don't trust me, he's got you too. the father. Two-thirds of the Trinity are holding on to you. And the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. He's the down payment of the assurance we're coming back to get you. You're not going anywhere. We're all in this. You're in the arms of God. Listen, how personal of an effect this has on our entire belief system with respect to the gospel. All of the graces of salvation fall apart if we have no assurance. Think about it. What good is regeneration? What good is it that I've been made alive to Christ, that I've been made alive to God? And when I was dead in my transgressions and sins, now I live. If tomorrow I'm dead again, what benefit is regeneration? If it only lasts as long as I want to keep it going? What benefit is justification, is forgiveness of sins? If today I'm forgiven, singing about forgiveness, and tomorrow I'm not forgiven anymore? What benefit is that? What benefit is adoption? That God has made us a part of his family. He's taken us out of the world and he said, you're my sons and daughters. If next week I do something and he sends me back to the orphanage of the world, what good is that? Don't you see? Assurance. Assurance ties every grace of salvation and puts a permanent seal on it. It makes every grace sing. And no grace can sing without it. That grace can sing as long as you keep things together. But how well do we do keeping things together? I don't know about you. That doesn't sing. Assurance makes God's grace sing. His grace shines brighter because the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 1.6? I'm confident of this. The one who's begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
J.C. Ryle writes, let it be noted that to be safe in Christ's hand and so never to perish is one thing, but to feel that we are safe is quite another. Peter was saying that last week as he was expounding Psalm 23. I don't want you to just get this and be informed about this. I want you to feel this. That's what Ryle is saying. I want you to feel assured. Many true believers, he writes, are safe who do not realize and feel it. What a tragedy that is. You're missing out. Your songs would be so much louder. You'd jump so much higher if you knew how great salvation really is. Now, in the same decade in which Cardinal Bellarmine was saying the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance, there was a band of brothers gathered together writing a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. A happy bunch of heretics. And they were contemplating... They were contemplating the beauty of assurance. And here's how they wrote the question and the answer. Oh, this is so rich. What is thy only comfort in life and death? Ultimately, we have one comfort in this life. Ultimately, we have one comfort in death. And they're about to take us into the scriptures to show us what that is. Here's the answer. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, this is good, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live to him. Now, you may not feel the beauty of this doctrine every morning when you put your feet on the floor. I pray you would. You may not. The truth of it is, though, that there will be a time in your life when you're going to need this doctrine. You're going to need it for yourself. You're going to need it for people that you care about, people you're praying for, people that you've called brother and sister who are going through the valley right now and you're wondering what's, what's going on. You're going to need this doctrine to leverage its power in your heart. I love this. I'm going to conclude with this meditation from John Bunyan to souls that struggle with legalism, souls that struggle with seeing our sin in light of the holiness of God and then getting under the weight of condemnation. And Bunyan writes these sweet words. Listen to this. Sometimes a believer is, as he thinks, so far off from God that they think themselves beyond the reach of God's mercy. But when we think his mercy is clean gone, that ourselves are among the number that he remembereth no more, even then he can reach us. This should encourage them that for the present 
cannot stand, but that do fly before their guilt. Them that feel no help nor stay, I will say before thee and I pray thee hear me. Oh, the length of the saving arm of God. As yet thou art within the reach thereof. Do not thou go about to measure arms with God. I mean, do not thou conclude that because thou canst not reach God by thy short stump. Therefore, he cannot reach thee with his long arm. Look again. Hast thou an arm like God? It becomes thee when thou canst not perceive that God is within the reach of thy arm. Than to believe that thou art within the reach of his, for it is long. And none knows how long. Lord, as we stand together, we recognize your word. And Lord, we desire that you would put within our hearts an assurance that is so foundational, that is so deeply felt that it creates the kind of life that stays near to the shepherd. Lord, isn't it true that the doctrine of assurance itself keeps me from wanting to stray? Where else could I find somebody who wouldn't kick me to the curb when I do the wrong thing? You're a merciful Savior. Why would I ever want to walk away from you, Lord? So, Lord, keep your people close. Or those this morning who have been hearing your voice, maybe they've never heard it before, but they're hearing it this morning. They're hearing the shepherd speaking the word of the gospel and they're desiring to come. Oh, Lord, speak and keep speaking. Bring them all the way home. Keep us till the day that we look in your eyes and together... All of us lift our voices in celebration, not because now that we're in heaven, we're safe, but because since we trusted in you, we've been safe all along. Now help us to sing and worship you in appropriate ways, Lord, in ways that are fitting to the glory of this gospel. 